Jumped O'Bannon, in and out, down the lane. And the foul. Rebounded inside, O'Bannon, who banks it in. Here's O'Bannon, he's been sensational. To the bucket! O'Bannon, the senior, the last time he will ever play on this court at Freedom Hall, and he flat can't miss. Welcome, welcome, guys, to another episode of the Players Perspective Uncensored with Larry O'Bannon. Appreciate you guys for tuning in and showing love as always. Now, before we get started, I'd like to invite you guys over to our new YouTube channel that we just launched, the Players Perspective Uncensored Podcast. It's a great way for you guys to see how we interact with our guests. Definitely like, subscribe, leave a comment. We love you guys' feedback, and uh, we're excited about launching that new YouTube channel. Now, for this episode, we have our guest on who is Master Distiller Denny Potter from the Maker's Mark Distillery. Looking forward to having him on. Has a ton of experience and background in the bourbon industry. And uh, he's going to tell us about how he got started. Now, for our bourbon selection of the day, we have three different bottles of Maker's Mark. We have Maker's Mark 101, we have the RC6 Wood Finishing Series, and we have the Maker's Mark Select. And so Master Distiller Denny's going to give us a little bit of background on each as we do our virtual tasting and we're going to enjoy it and I'm going to give you guys my feedback and let you know what I think and which one I'll give the nod out of the three. So I'm excited about it. I'm really looking forward to it. So without further ado, let's go ahead and bring Master Distiller Denny into the podcast. Denny, how you doing? Welcome into the Players Perspective Uncensored Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. I know you're a busy man, but I appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your day to come through and talk bourbon with us. No, man. Glad to do it. Glad to do it. It sounds like we have a few mutual friends. So uh, I definitely heard about your podcast. And um, once it was mentioned that, hey, would you, would you, you know, be willing to do this? I was like, hell yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> no, man. thanks for having me on. Glad to do it. Oh, no problem. No problem. So let's get into it. Tell me about your background and your journey to becoming a master distiller of makers. It's not your first stop as being a master distiller. You have a background with uh, some other companies, but tell us about your journey to becoming the master distiller of makers. Sure. I mean, you know, master distiller, it's not, it's not something that at least back in the day, you know, I'm, I'm 47. So back when I was in college, it wasn't anything that anybody set out to do. I mean, you know, um, breweries and distilleries weren't necessarily looked at as big manufacturers or anything like that. So uh, I originally wanted to be a marine biologist. That's what I wanted to be. And that's what led me to go into biology. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that um, you quickly realize, especially as you build up uh, some debt and other things that uh, marine biologists don't make that much money, man. <laughs> so uh, it, it led me into kind of the technical side and the lab side. So I started out as a lab tech at Beam in 98. And lucky enough that, you know, that, that my first week on the job met Freddie No, who, you know, we call him Big Fred. But Big Fred is, is a good friend of mine, lives not even a mile away from, from me. Uh, and then I actually got to meet his dad, Booker No, uh, within the first couple of weeks because I was taking him distillate samples to his house so that he could approve them for Booker's. And and so it just, you know, it's one of those things. Once I got into the industry, um, being on the technical side and the lab side, I learned a lot of the science behind what we were doing and, and why we were doing it. 
and how to build control so that we can make sure we were consistent. Uh, but I also knew that I wanted to move into operations. And so did the lab at Beam, uh, got into operations at Beam, and then uh, came to Makers in 2003. You know, I meet Bill Samuels, and then at the time, uh, we didn't know it, but when I started here, there were three master distillers here at the time that we really didn't know. You had Steve Nally, who, you know, is in the Bourbon Hall of Fame and, and is at Birdstown Bourbon. You had Dave Pickerel, who Dave is obviously from a lot of the things he's done, especially on the craft side, has a very uh, big name. Unfortunately, you know, he passed away last year. And then you had Kevin Smith, who was a master distiller as well. And then, um, you know, at Makers, I was here the first time I was here for seven years, uh, took over the distillery when Steve Nally uh, decided to retire and then worked my way up to becoming assistant master distiller. So, you know, the title master distiller, I mean, I listen, I love it. I think it's a very prestigious title. Um, it's something, you know, within the industry, uh, you know, you certainly, there's, there's a lot of pride in that, but I'll be honest with you, Larry, it's a bullshit title. So, you know, the, the, the title is, I mean, when I say that it's, um, it's, it's born out of marketing mm -hmm. because I have, you know, we run seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And I got 20 people over in that distillery right behind me right now. that could all qualify as master distillers. If you're looking at the technical side of the business, because that's what they do. Right. Um, but there's a lot more to it. You know, that title is really more about the marketing side, which is to go out and talk to people about what we do, how we do it, why we do it be a bit of a brand ambassador. You know, the title carries a lot of weight. So when you do get in front of a people, you know, they, they tend to, you kind of have their attention. So they're listening. And so it's, I mean, it's extremely, it, you know, it's one of those things that um, when it's bestowed upon you, I mean, you're, you're absolutely just beside yourself, but you know, the title from an operation standpoint is really more marketing than it is operations. But long story short, um, I became assistant master distiller here at Makers working under Kevin Smith, who was our master distiller. And the main reason for that was because we do a lot of stuff here on site at Makers in Loretto where we would give VIP tours, uh, VIP tastings, things like that. And they just recognized the fact that um, I was a pretty good BSer. You know, I mean, I was somebody that would talk and, I, you know, just wasn't too nervous in front of a group of people. Right. And uh, But also was the distillery manager. So I had, you know, a lot of things working to my advantage, much like Kevin had at the same time. So was doing that, um, loved running the distillery here, and just out of the blue, you know, Makers is a part of, um, you know, a, a company that has a lot of different operations and was approached about um, running a rum distillery down in the Virgin Islands. We had just acquired them, uh, Crucian Rum, down in St. Croix, and so they asked me if I would go run that facility for three years, kind of onboard them. There were a lot of things we had to do, uh, you know, from an investment standpoint, but the whole idea was go there for three years and then come back to Makers. Um, unbelievable experience. That's a whole nother podcast talking about Crucian and, you know, the experience in the VI. Uh, but, you know, when, when it was time to come back, I, I didn't get the opportunity to come back to Makers. I went to another facility. I did love that. But, you know, it was one of those things, man, you know, it just didn't feel right. And I got offered, you know, offered an opportunity to go to Heaven Hill as their distillery plant manager. And then um, ended up after a couple years uh, taking over for Parker Beam as master distiller. You know, Parker had been diagnosed with ALS and that marketing side of that job of the travel, the tastings, 
the the educations. You know, Parker just, I mean, it was an energy drain on him, and he just, you know, he just really couldn't uh, do that. And obviously, he had other things he needed to focus on. So the Shapira family, which is the family that founded Maker's Mark, or I'm sorry, uh, Heaven Hill, um, asked if I would become their master distiller. So that was probably 2000, late 2014. So I became um, Heaven Hill's master distiller and had a great job, man. I mean, I mean, you, you know, bourbon, you know, some of the, the bourbons that they put out or right. American whiskeys in general really yeah, have the world in, in the game. Yeah, really is. And, uh, but I just got, I, you know, I got this kind of uh, text out of the blue from Rob Samuels about two years ago and just said, Hey man, give me a call. would love to catch up. And next thing you know, uh, you know, he's asking if I'd ever be interested in coming back to Maker's Mark. And um, if, if you know this brand and if you've ever been to this facility, you know that it's, I mean, it's just a phenomenal place, right? You know, it's a brand um, born out of the Samuels family 66 years ago. We run, you know, the same mash bill. We do all these things that what we call purposely inefficient that we've been doing for 66 years, but we do it because there's a reason behind it. And it's all about you know, that brand being, um, you know, just a quality brand that people can appreciate. And so long story short, decided to leave Heaven Hill and come back to Maker's Mark. So that was a little over a year and a half ago. So uh, in October of 2018, came back to Maker's as plant manager and master distiller. You know, that's my other job is, you know, from an operation standpoint um, is running the plant. You know, we have about 240 employees. As I said, we run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So, you know, that, that's, that's, a, I get a lot of joy out of the operations side. So we're, um, it's been a little bit of different, you know, a little bit different here lately just because we don't have any visitors and you know, there's no travel or anything like that, but it's off, you know, it's been awfully nice too to spend all the time here at the distillery. So in a nutshell, I've been in the industry for 23, you know, roughly 23 years and you know, the role of the master distiller just, Man, I don't know. It's sure, it's sure in the hell wasn't a straight line. I think it's just one of those. Um, you kind of work your way into it. And people recognize the fact that you might be good at, uh, you know, telling the story of the brand and showing the passion for the brand and, and why we do what we do. And I guess I've, I've just been very, very, very lucky. No doubt. No doubt. Home is where the heart is, man. And it's pretty cool to hear about the other things that go into being a master distiller because when I think of master distiller, I think of somebody that goes around and, you know, tastes some of each barrel and just tasting and making sure that the barrel is ready or determining if it's not ready. And so it's pretty cool to hear about other things that go into the job description of being a master distiller. What's definitely part of it, yes. Right. Now, what's probably the most important trait when it comes to being a master distiller? Probably more um, so on the tasting side of that question. Yeah, I mean, um, I think there, you know, there's a few things. One is, is having a passion to do it, right? I mean, right. you know, as a master distiller, and, and we have other people, but, you know, I'm part of a group um, from a taste panel aspect that, that smell and taste every single day, but you have to have a passion for that. I mean, it's, you know, we don't drink 24 hours a day, but we have to taste pretty much every day. And, and that a lot of times that starts at eight in the morning. And, and it's really, um, it really is about understanding why we're doing it and what we're looking for. And for makers in a way I'm, I'm lucky because we have a brand that has been around for 66 years that has a very distinct taste profile. So my job tasting is just trying to figure out, um, 
is this consistent, right? Looking for things that shouldn't be there. But, uh, you know, so, so the aspect really is being able to lock in and um, kind of distinguish what you're tasting, what you're smelling, you know, because from a distillate standpoint, I probably do more distillate samples than anything. And you're not going to taste those every day. You're really going to smell them. And then being able to verbalize what you're tasting and smelling, because usually you have a group of people that you're talking to. So from a tasting aspect, you know, I think it's a, it's a combination of all that is, you know, just to have the ability to verbalize with other people what you're tasting along with the talent to tell, you know, what shouldn't be there. Or, you know, specifically, if you're looking for something specific in the beginning, are you reaching that? Are you getting to that? And we can talk a little bit about that with RC6 because that was kind of the goal. From an operation standpoint, I think the, the number one trait for a master distiller is you have to have patience. You know, it's we can't just create a new mash bill or um, utilize a new type of barrel or, you know, change things up in the maturation process and then get the result of that the next day. Right. So, you know, there are things that we do today we get all hyped up about, something we're trying in the distillery, then we do it and it goes in the barrel and it's like, Ah, damn. I mean, so for us, it's about six years later. And so you can't, I mean, you just have to, you kind of have to temper that a little bit, but, um, but you do, I mean, you kind of get to that point. You enjoy the process. The end product is fantastic. You always want to be validated, but you have to enjoy just the process before you even get there. Is there more of a focus on being consistent and have a, having a consistent taste to your bourbon or is there also more focus on being innovative and coming up with unique taste and different tastes to come up with different types of bourbon? Yeah. I mean, Larry, you're, it's, it's both to be honest. I mean, for us, um, you know, because we, when, when the Samuel started us out back in 1954 and we did that first barrel, that a very specific taste profile, sweet, smooth, finish on the tip of the tongue, no bitterness. So, you know, 95% of what we do is that mash bill in that taste vision, which is what we call, you know, the classic makers. So um, that is a big part of my job. And I take a lot of pride in the fact that we try to nail that every single day, you know, what, what they created 66 years ago. But, and, you know, as we're going to taste, there is, I mean, you know, the consumers changed drastically in the last five to 10 years. And, you know, people are interested in new and unique and understanding, you know, how you got to that, that finished product. And so, um, you know, it is a combination of both, but there's no doubt consumers are genuinely interested in, in new and different. And, you know, we, and we do that, you know, it's not, it's not something that is going to consume us but it's got to be something that we have a focus on. And we do, we actually, we have an innovation department led by Jane Bowie and, uh, and Beth Buckner. And, and so that's their job every day is to stay focused on this wood finishing on, you know, all these other things that um, whether it's uh, you know, just the grains that we grow and how farming practices can actually influence flavor coming off the still. So uh, there is a lot of that and we got to make sure for the longest time, we didn't do anything different. It's about 55 years that we just did classic makers. And then, um, you know, Bill Jr. basically said, you know what? We, we One, he had a taste vision, but he also recognized the fact that we need to do something a little bit different because people are interested in that. And that's when we created Makers 46. So 
that's that's been on the market for about 10 years. Nice. Now, one of the things that we've been dealing with in the last, you know, I don't know how many years, let's say 15, 10, 15 years has been global warming. How has that affected the grains that you guys grow and the aging process and the effect on the, the taste and how are you really being consistent with that taste with the global warming? What effect has that taken on you guys as far as creating a bourbon? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, especially from the grain side, because I don't know that we've ever, you know, as an industry that outside of identifying, well, you know, corn gives this flavor and wheat gives this flavor and malt adds this and rye does this. I don't know that we've ever fully understood how impacts of weather and climate and soil can influence flavor of grain. So part of what we're doing right now is to, is to understand that. And we have a partnership with the University of Kentucky uh, and, and, and a lot of what they're doing there to try to get to that point that we can understand it. I can tell you from, you know, just the global warming aspect from the grains, you know, it does impact yield, um, you know, how much corn you get per bushel or how much wheat. But on the flip side of that, you know, we just, we just had a freeze that occurred in May that impacts the yield of wheat. So there's just so many variables. We know that from a grain aspect, it does have an influence, whether that's flavor or whether that's just volume. Um, you know, I think we just got to weed through that from a barrel standpoint and a barrel maturation standpoint. Um, once again, it's kind of hard to absolutely pinpoint what is global warming because uh, there's so many variables that go into the maturation process. I'll tell you, I mean, there's no doubt it'll have an impact on your angel share or what we co call the recovery. So the amount of alcohol um, that evaporates out of that barrel by the time you dump it. You know, we've seen swings in our angel share uh, where we get good recovery and then they kind of drop back down. Uh, we know that global warming has an impact on that. You know, as you get into hot summers, that is going to impact the amount that evaporates out of that barrel, which in turn will impact the flavor of that barrel. So, um, you know, we have recognized that you do see, you know, that's the reason why we say fully mature. We don't, you know, Makers isn't age dated because we do understand that climate ha plays an impact on the flavor of that whiskey. So we kind of reserve the right to move the age a little bit, which is always around six years, always. So that we can really try to nail that consistent liquid quality. Um, so it's, you know, it, it is it is something that does impact the finished product. It's you just got to be paying attention to it today. Because what we don't want is 10 years from now, all of a sudden going, wow, this is this tastes completely different and why? So a lot of this now is just really understanding the baseline and, and knowing when we're getting those dips and those in those peaks and then really trying to equate the data with what we're seeing and how that impacts flavor. So there's a lot of that that, um, you know, that Jane and Beth are working on here at Makers. And then as an industry, we're paying attention to. Right. Now you said that Makers operates on a full cycle, 365, 24 hours, seven days a week. So how yeah. many barrels or gallons of bourbon do you produce a day? So we will um, roughly barrels per day coming off the still is going to be about 550 to 600 barrels. So, um, you know, and then volume's a little bit different because it depends on what, you know, we go off of what's called a proof gallon. 
and which is a normalized because you know let's say you got a five gallon bucket well a five gallon bucket that has let's say 90 proof whiskey in it and you got a five gallon bucket that has 120 proof whiskey in it well there's actually even though it's the same volume you have more alcohol with the 120 proof right mm -hmm. because if you add water to it increases the volume so we do everything um, we normalize it based on proof gallons, which is at a hundred, a hundred proof. So, um, we go in the barrel at 110. So it, uh, our barrels are at 58.3 proof gallons. So we're about 34 to 35,000 proof gallons per day. Yeah. Nice. So that's basically a, a, a tank that is at a hundred proof. So 35,000 gallons at a hundred proof. With the COVID-19 there was a passing of the House Bill 415 that allowed you guys to go directly from distiller to consumer. How has that shipping and delivery had effect on the demand for you guys? Well, for, you know, for us, we're not, um, and I don't know many people that are direct shipping yet on the bourbon side. It, it's something that we're planning for, but it's not, I mean, you know, one of the things is, you know, obviously um, we've had the three tier system in place here in the U S for a long time. Mm -hmm. And we have incredible distributor partners. Like we can't, like they're so needed because, you know, they just have a network of people that are in the on-premise. So the bars and restaurants in the liquor stores. And I mean, that is such an important part of our business because, because that's, you know, they're the ones that we rely on that really reach out to the consumer. Now, um, what we're looking at as far as direct ship or kind of like the distillery exclusive stuff. So those things that, um, um, you know, whether it might be the one Oh one, whether it might be, uh, you know, a wood finishing release, that's what we're looking to do. We're hoping to have, you know, kind of that structure in place by or I'd say August, September. We're not doing it just yet. It's not going to any, be anything high volume. Uh, we don't ever see a scenario where we're direct shipping, you know, classic makers or anything like that. But maybe some of these, you know, products that aren't nationally distributed, um, we're looking to, you know, obviously create a program where we can direct ship some of those. What is your goal for makers? What is your goals or something that you set out that you want to accomplish for the company? You know, for me, one is, and I mean, and this goes back to, you know, literally my first week when I came to makers the first time back in 2003, um, as Bill Jr. told me, don't F it up. I mean, you know, that's what his parents started something um, that has been, you know, wildly successful. So, you know, for me, it's, you know, obviously when I retire and step away, you know, I want to make sure I can look back and say, I, I did, right? I didn't screw it up. So, um, you know, that, that's really important to me. And, then, you know, the other side of it, too, is, you know, I think it's just, did I do things the right way, right? I mean, have we continued to do these things that makes makers so special? And that's, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, heard me sit, talk about purposely inefficient that, you know, if it comes from an accounting and finance perspective, we would never do these things because financially they don't make sense, but it's the way we've always done it. Whether it's, uh, you know, using a roller mill instead of a hammer mill, running small batches, you know, running... 10,000 gallon mash tubs and fermenters, you know, we could obviously increase the size of that. Um, going in the barrel at 110 proof instead of 125. That's a big difference. You know, like we could eat today 
we if we went in at 125, we'd save just on barrels. We'd save four million dollars. So um, rotating barrels, hand dipping every single bottle. Last year we hand dipped 30 million bottles. That's phenomenal. I mean, that's incredible. And um, you know, so it's it's all those things that you know. As I retire and get out, are we still doing those? And do we still have the same pride in that that we've had pretty much from day one? Now. You know, do, do I like to do? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, from the wood finishing releases to a lot of the things we have, you know, in the pipe when it comes to uh, innovation. Yeah, I don't know what that is. I don't know that I really want my name on that. But if that's something that helps tell the story of Maker's Mark and keeps people interested in what we do, then I'm all for it. I'm absolutely all for it. What's something that you've taken away that can make Maker's Mark better during this quarantine? Um, you know, what's been interesting is, you know, I'm used to going out, either having people here on site to take on a tour or to do a tasting or something like that, mm-hmm. or to be on the road. What's really been interesting was, or is, is just kind of like what you and I are doing. I mean, normally, um, we probably, you'd either be here, or I'd be, you know, in your studio doing this. It's understanding that, we can actually do this. Like I couldn't tell you how many virtual tastings I've done with people all over the world. And it's not something we ever probably would have done before because we would have felt it's very disconnected, right? Like that's not who we are. We want to make sure we've got this face to face interaction. But I think one of the things we've really learned is, man, people enjoy it. Maybe it's because they know we can't get out and this is kind of the best case scenario, but it has been very effective, especially from an international perspective. I mean, you know, all the different things we've done there. Um, so, you know, there's, there's that side of it. Uh, I think from an operation side, it's, it's been very different here at makers. Like for the first time ever, we, we haven't been open for tours. And so to not have visitors here on site, like we can't wait for the day that they come back, but there's also been this, I don't know. I mean, you know, just uh, like a connection that's been reinforced amongst all of us that at the end of the day, we're still distilling, we're still bottling, we're still hand dipping, we're still shipping cases out the door. And so uh, the music plays on and it's such an, you know, it's an important part of, um, I think, of what people are going through right now. I mean, it's, uh, you know, if we can provide a little bit of relief and happiness and enjoyment just through, you know, having makers available um, at their local liquor store now as restaurants and bars open up a part of that. But, you know, I think it's been, you know, the, those two things is one is we can do things virtually and it's pretty uh, uh, impactful. And then also just here not having visitors here. It's just like this place is beautiful. So to walk out in the center of campus and nobody's around is I mean, it's I mean, it's a very calming feeling. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. And before we get into the uh, tasting, I really want to say thank you to you guys again for the bottles that we're about to sample. And a friend of mine that uh, helped connect us for Smallwood, I I look forward to watching uh, his story on social media. He's always posting stories, walking through the distillery, walking through different parts and just the beauty of just some of the scenery that he posts, man, is is really, truly amazing. Uh, I can't wait to get down there again and and tour the uh, distillery myself. Yeah, absolutely. We can't wait to have you. All right, so let's get into um, 
let's start right here with the RC6 first. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about it while I'm opening it up and uh, getting prepared for this tasting. Yeah, so um, what RC6 is, is, you know, this was our very first ever uh, national wood finishing release. So RC6 was really born out of how we created Makers 46. So it's basically, it's taken classic makers. The way for, the, what 46 is, is classic makers. And then it's enhanced through this wood finishing process that we created really back in, you know, 2009, 2010 when we launched 46, which is where we take classic makers, we dump it out of a barrel, we take um, staves that have been cooked and toasted in a certain way to elicit very specific flavors. We put these, what we call wood finishing staves in the barrel dump the classic makers back in, seal it up, and then roll it into our cellar where it's a, you know, it's a, it's very cold. It's like being in a cave uh, and age it for an additional nine months or nine weeks to create, you know, the 46, which is basically makers on steroids, makers amped up. So that's the process. The way RC6 was born, and this was something that um, Jane Bowie who you know pretty much is our director of innovation and has led a lot of these initiatives, they wanted to create a program where we had a wood finishing release every year that really told a story of the process of operations. And so each year we're going to pick you know certain things that we want to highlight and tell that story. And this was a story about yeast. So the impact that yeast has on the process, specifically, what are some of those smells and tastes that you get from yeast? Um, and, and, and so when you think about yeast, you think of um, hoppy, bright, fruity, spicy. And that, that, was, that was how this was created. So um, Jane and the team that worked on this initially before I came on board, that was their vision. We want to create something that has all of these, um, all of these things. And so it took two years working with Independent Stave to finally find a wood finishing stave that could create this flavor profile. So, you know, on the nose, you're still going to get a lot of, you know, the caramel and the vanilla. Um, you get a little bit of the spice. When you go to taste it, immediately, you know, you think of bright and vibrant. Um, with this one, you know, it definitely has notes of fruit and baking spices, which is really kind of what you get from the yeast process. When you think of the finish, you definitely get a little bit of a longer finish. Yeah. Spicy. has got a lot of character to it. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's really what their vision was day one when um, they created RC six. And so this was released in the fall of last year. And the reason why it's called RC six, uh, cause we're the world's worst at naming things. Just look at makers 46. Nobody <laughs> understands what 46 means, but RC six is, you know, Independent Stave was the company, you know, they make our barrels. And they're also kind of uh, at the forefront of wood finishing technology, how to treat wood, um, toast it, cook it, all these things to elicit flavors. And so we've partnered with them for years. So much so uh, through the 46 process, they decided to build a research center at their barrel manufacturing operation in Lebanon, Kentucky, about nine miles from here. They built a research center. And so the first project they worked on with us out of that research center was this RC6. So RC6 stands for Research Center Stave Profile 6. 
So this was their stave six that kind of nailed the vision that Jane and the team had going into creating this liquid. So it was released in the fall of last year. Uh, we're planning on, um, you know, a wood finishing release this fall that will be available nationally, you know, not just here at Makers, but across the country. And they're all uh, going to be at barrel proof. So this one's at uh, 108.2. Uh, we won't know what the next one is until we dump it and then take the final proof on it. So that, that's RC6. Nice. Has a beautiful aroma on the nose. You can really pick up the, uh, the French and the vanilla. Very present. But it's a nice, soft taste. Uh, has a good texture to it. Nice old bodies. You know, really feels um, full on the tongue. Like you said, the finish is long-lasting. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but it's, it's, it's a nice drink. It's a nice drink. Now, let me ask you this. Have you, have you had that before? I have not. I have not. I have these. This is my first time for all three. It's my first time. Oh, for nice, man. Yeah, my first time for all three. So let's let's go to the private select now. Maybe you can give us a little background on the private select. Yeah. Sample this one. Um, so, so private select, if you're not familiar with it, is our version of a barrel program. So, you know, you have, um, you know, distilleries that can offer up uh, you know, where people come in, accounts come in, consumers, customers, and pick out their their barrel of whatever it is, whether it's Knob Creek, Elijah Craig. So, you know, this was something that really started to get popular, you know, probably six or seven years ago. And makers recognize the fact that it's a popular program. The problem that we have is those programs are popular because, you know, they all are born out of the same mash bill, but where those barrels end up in the warehouse, if they're all the same age, you know, a barrel on the sixth floor at six years tastes drastically different than a barrel on the first floor at six years. So you can right. come in and pick a six-year-old and it might taste, drastic, taste drastically different. Because we rotate barrels, you know, after, you know, when we put new barrels in our warehouse for the first three years, they're in the top floors of the warehouse. So in a six-story warehouse, they'll be in floors four, five, and six. After three summers, we rotate them down. So floor six goes to one, five to two, four to three. And then they age an additional three years. And the reason for that is we want every barrel to taste very close um, in profile to the one before it and the one after it. So we want consistency from barrel to barrel, not just batch to batch. So when you think about a barrel program for us, we could have people come in and lay four, five barrels out and select their barrel, but at the end of the day, they're not going to taste that much different. Um, so this was something that was really led by Rob Samuels and, and Jane as well, of how can we create a barrel program that is specific to makers, but yet allows consumers to be a part of the process and have their, you know, their fingerprint on um, their style of makers. And, and this was born out of 46. So when we talk about those 10 flavor staves, we actually have a process where people can come in and create, not create, but pick the, the 10 staves that they want to put in that barrel to finish their whiskey. So we invite people in or we can do it remotely. And so um, they can pick from five staves. Uh, we have American, uh, what we call uh, Pure 2. We have Cuvée. We have Makers 46. That's one of the staves you can pick. We have a Mocha stave and we have a Spice stave. So you have five staves that you can pick, total of 10 to create your version of, of, of makers, right? So this is one um, that was created by what's called Star Hill Provisions. And so this is the one we sent you, Larry. 
-hmm. that it's created by a restaurant on site. So we have a restaurant on site uh, that does lunch every day. We do dinners on the weekends, um, but it also, they do cocktails. So they wanted to create their version of makers that would go well, neat on the rocks, but specifically uh, in an old fashioned or a Manhattan. So this specific um, makers private select is heavy on the cuvee stave. So with, you know, with cuvee, you're going to get a lot of oak, toast, spice. It's going to be very creamy and rich, so it's going to be kind of deep um, on kind of the mouthfeel. You might even get a little bit of butterscotch on this. This is at 108.9 proof, so this is at cast strength as well. So when you nose it, I get butterscotch on the nose almost yeah. immediately. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously more, I get a little more bit caramel butterscotch, butterscotch than in this one, yeah. And then when you taste it, you know, that, that spice in that toast to me really comes through. I can really – the toast really starts to finish. It's creamy, but it's a little bit – it almost finishes a little dry. And some of that is because they use a mocha stave in this. And mocha, it's not like your typical candy chocolate that you think of. It's more of like um, the powder chocolate or the baking chocolate that you use. So it can, it can add a little bit of dryness on that finish. So – it's creamy up front, but it's kind of dry on the finish, so it's got pretty good texture to it. But we make a house old-fashioned with this at the Maker's Restaurant. So um, it's been very well received. Once again, you, there's a 1,001 different combinations, and you know we have people come in, um, mainly bars and restaurants, but we do have a lot of liquor stores that will come in and create their version of Maker's and and then sell it with their name on the bottle. So it's been very, very well received in the market. Nice, nice. Now, while I'm getting ready to, uh, while I'm cleaning my glass, you said that you guys typically age your bourbon six years. Now, for me, I've been in the bourbon uh, journey for about, about a year now. And a lot of the bourbons that I've sort of come to prefer have been aged roughly 10 to 12 years. Now, have you guys considered doing a bourbon that was aged maybe a little longer than six years and going over that? Or is that kind of like, that's the franchise, that's what we've been had success with, and that's what we're going to stay with? Consistency? Yeah, it's, like um, yes, we, I mean, we've thought about it. I mean, it's one of those, um, it is a very, you know, we do get that question, you know, for us, you know, the six years meets the taste profile that Bill and Margie Samuels created 66 years ago, which was that, you know, sweet, smooth, finish on the tip of the tongue, no bitterness. So for makers, if you're sticking to that vision, if you start to get over, you know, if you're getting over seven years, it's not that it's bad at all. It's just not necessarily our vision makers. of who we are. Doesn't mean we We'll never do it. I'd never say never. Um, you know, I, 10 years ago, we probably, yeah, no, we'll never do that. But there wasn't, you know, as, as much of an interest in a lot of these different products. And, and I mean, what you've said, uh, you know, there, there is a wheelhouse that people kind of fall in, especially when it comes to rye bourbons. That 8 to 12 year is a lot of people's sweet spot. Mm -hmm. um, weeded bourbons like us, they can swing either way. It, you know, it just depends. So I'm not surprised to hear you say that because there are some really, really good rye bourbons that are in that eight to 12 year range. Uh, for us, we're not, you know, because anything that you hold back for, you know, 10 to 12 years comes out of, 
what we have available today. So it does impact, you know, the amount of, of makers we have available to the market today. So all those things come into consideration. I would never say never. I will tell you 10 to 12 years taste damn good. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's not the vision that was initially created for us. And, and, uh, you know, there might be an opportunity at some point uh, where we might do something like that. And, um, and I know, I know people will love it. People will love it just because they'll see that it's a 10 to 12 year old. And, you know, wh one of the things that I tell people all the time is, you know, please don't ever judge the quality of a bourbon on age or price. Um, uh, especially price, you know, that's one right. of the phenomenal bourbons out there, uh, for, you know, under $40 that will absolutely knock your socks off. And, and then obviously there are some that a lot more than that, that, that are damn good. Uh, but they're, you know, bourbons that are underneath, you know, $40, even $30, you know, us for makers is typically 25 bucks. Uh, just, yeah, just don't get hung up on price. You know, when you get in that secondary market, man, um, you know, those prices shoot up pretty quick and yeah, not saying it's not worth it. I mean, that, you know, there are some stuff, you know, having a bourbon that's rare is pretty cool. It really is. You invite people over and people get to try something that they may never get to try again. Uh, but for us it's, and so as far as it took 10 to 12 year old, I'd never say never, not a focal point for us right now though. And, uh, I'm, I'm big on the weeded bourbon. I've tried a lot of bourbons and I'm, you know, I'm still learning my palate. Excuse me. I love I love a weeded bourbon because I love the sweeter taste. I love the softer tone of it, and so um, it's really uh, one of my go-to's. If you know, if I had to choose a bourbon, a rye, or straight bourbon, or weeded, I'm going to prefer the weeded uh, bourbon. It's sure. I mean you know and I, you know I just speak to makers, but you know one of the things I, that I think is 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 incredible about you know our classic makers is yeah it's been around for 66 years. Is it new? Not, no, no, but we take pride in that, right? But one of the things that I love about our classic makers, to me, it's one of, if not the best universal bourbon on the market. And what I mean by that is, man, if I'm going to UofL tailgate, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take a 175 of makers, right? I don't know what how people like to drink their bourbon, but if you want it neat, on the rocks, old-fashioned, ginger ale, Coke, you name it, Classic is going to get you there. So um, I do think that weeded bourbons can tend to be a little more versatile when it comes to how you mix them. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're all good, man. I mean, they're all good. People are uh, at the end of the day, you know, people just have their their own preferences that have built up, you know, from their experiences. And uh, I'm just glad that, you know, hopefully people enjoy drinking makers and we kind of check that box for them. Right. And as we move on to uh, the next sample of 101, I will tell yeah. you this. Makers was definitely the first bourbon that I tried. I think living in Louisville, Kentucky, <laughs> I think, you know, if you ever were to try bourbon or if you were to ever, you know, start your journey, bourbon uh, makers is usually the first thing that comes to mind or the first thing that you're going to try. And so makers definitely was uh, my first bourbon that I tried. So now uh, we have the Makers 101. Maybe you could tell us about that a little bit. So, you know, Makers 101 is actually, it's it's not something new. It's something that we did um, back in the day. It was a gold wax. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a little bit like the cast strength bottle that we have out now, but with the gold wax. So the 101 is not something 
that's nationally distributed. It's available here at our gift shop. It's available at duty free. So what we call GTR, Global Travel Retail. So as you travel, um, especially international, you'll see that you can find the 101. Um, there, there is a strong push from people that have tried this to release this on a national scale. So, you know, we're weeding through that right now. Uh, there's a, a lot of talk about it. It is a phenomenal liquid. So this is, so Makers 101 um, is for the most part, you know, completely unadulterated outside of, you know, usually when we dump a barrel, we're between 108 to 112 proof. And so this one is cut to 101 proof. And so, you know, one, it's, you know, as you've got sitting in front of you, I mean, it's a beautiful package. So we absolutely love that. What I love about the Makers 101, and this this has gotten to be one of the favorites for the people that work here at Makers, mm-hmm. is um, it's extremely sweet, smooth. It's nice and mellow. Um, it's got great uh, caramel and vanilla notes. And it's just got a nice... Uh, easy linger. So, you know, it's not something that's going to, you know, be super overpowering, but you get it, you get enough character in it that you can walk away going, man, I, you know, I really enjoyed that. So that's kind of what you get with this 101. Very smooth. I mean, you know, this is one that, you know, as you drink it, um, you don't get, you know, it's, you don't get burned hardly at all with many of our products, but this is one that's just nice and smooth. Great finish, hangs around just long enough. Um, you know, this is uh, neat on the rocks. Uh, if you want to make a, a cocktail with it, I would suggest our cast drink for classic cocktails or maybe 46 if you want to go that way. I love this one, Nader on the Rocks. This is, and it's so funny because people here at the distillery, this is one of their favorites. I mean, it, you know, we haven't been doing it for very long or haven't brought it back for very long, but um, we'll see what happens with this one. It's, uh, people, you know, we'll taste when the public comes through on their on their public tours. A lot of times we'll have that on the panel and everybody wants to go buy a bottle 101. So it's it's good. So I'm curious. So what's your take on it? Have, you've never had this before. I've never had it. Very smooth. Uh, feel it breathing. Pretty, pretty good energy. Very smooth. Like you said, none of the bourbons here. There's no there's no heat and transition, really. Yeah. And so, yeah, right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no heat. And so this one's kind of, um, it's kind of like a lighter caramel. Uh, this, the RC was definitely more oaky and vanilla. The 46 was definitely had a stronger presence of caramel. This one has a lighter um, presence of caramel. Little marshmallows in there. Little, little marshmallows. Yeah. yeah. We get, I mean, we've actually gotten that note before. Uh, maybe a hint of cherry, yeah. But uh, yeah, I've actually I've heard I've actually heard that descriptor more than once. But this one has a when I when I warm it up, it has a little more energy on the nose. The one on one, it has a little yeah. bit more energy. But let me let me ask you this because I've always been curious about having bourbon on the rocks versus having bourbon neat. Tell me your preference about which bourbons you prefer to have on the rocks and which ones you prefer to have neat because when I have bourbon on the rocks, most times it's a cocktail and I'm mixing it with a little splash of ginger ale. I've never really had bourbon yeah. by itself. Yeah. On the rocks. So give me your sort of take on when you sort of put ice in it and when you sort of have it. Neat. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, once again, and I know, you know, there are people out there that if I say I drink, you know, bourbon 
um, straight with some rocks. I mean, they're going to absolutely flip their lid. But, I mean, obviously with cocktails – and then when you get into cocktails like Manhattan's, you want it uh, on the rocks, you want it up. I mean, you know, there's there's all that debate. What I'll say is, I mean, I do. I, I love bourbon neat. I, I, you know, I just think it's it's consistent. It's unadulterated. It's not going to get watered down. What I will tell you is I love to drink, you know, cast strength bourbons on the rocks. Um, and the reason why I say that is I think adding a couple cubes as the ice melts and drops the proof of that cast strength, you get it. You, you get intermittent changes in taste profile. And it's amazing if, if you think about what you're tasting at the beginning and then what you taste at the end after the ice is melted. It's, I mean, it can be phenomenally different. I love that because I, I just love the fact that I poured a glass, added a couple cubes, and what I started with doesn't taste like what I finished with, but it's still good. Um, so, and I go back and forth. I mean, you know, there are times at home, uh, it's just kind of my mood. I mean, what do I feel like? Do I want to use a little bit of ice? Do I want to, I'm a neater on the rocks guy. One, I like it that way too. I'm a terrible bartender. I can't, I just, I'm not good, man. I mean, you know, there are plenty of other people out there that are good at mixing drinks and I'm not one of them. So um, it's easy. I can't screw it up if I'm just, you know, doing it neater on the rocks, but it's, you know, I'm with you. It's how, however you enjoy it and depending on the mood. I mean, that's the other thing too. Like if I'm going to a football game, I mean, I'm telling you, man, I'm not drinking bourbon neat at 10 in the morning. If we've got a noon kickoff, and I'm drinking it neat. I'm going to drink it just as fast as if I'm drinking it on the rocks and the ice is melting. So I want to make kickoff. So, I mean, you got to think about that, too. I mean, you can't get completely bombed. Right, right. So before we get to our bird proof segment and wrap before our questions, I want to ask you this last question uh, that I'm going to leave you with. What do you want your legacy at Maker's Mark to be? I mean, I think for me, it's – I just want to be known as somebody that that – treated people right and did things the right way. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's not, and maybe this is more the operations guy in me than it is, you know, kind of the, the marketing side. You know, I just, I just want to be known as not necessarily for the liquid, but just how I did things. Right. You know, how um, I helped people do their job, how I helped maintain the legacy of makers and, um, you know, just make sure that we're on, you know, pretty stable ground when, when, when I retire and that, you know, we're a generational operation. I mean, you know, we have people that work here that their kids work here, people that have retired, their grandkids are working here. Um, you know, I think for me, I think, you know, the legacy is how I treated people and did I do things the right way and did I F anything up? You know, it goes back to what Bill said that first week. And, you know, if I can check all those boxes, I'll be happy. I'll be happy. I love the liquid side of it. Don't get me wrong. Um, but if I were to tell you that I was going to tie my legacy to liquid, then I, it's just, that's not being genuine to be honest. Right. Well, Denny, now we've reached a part of the podcast that we like to call the burr proof segment. We're going to shoot you some rapid fire questions, but I want you to give it a lot of thought. Just give us your first answer. We're going to roll with it. All right, man. I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> first question, your favorite age range for bourbon. Um, obviously for weeded bourbon, I love where we are on the six year. I think I kind of tip my hat. Uh, if you're looking at a bourbon rye, um, I think it's at eight to 12, man. I mean, I, I, 
I love that eight to 12 year range. I'm like you. Nice. Your favorite NBA team. Uh, it's the Pacers. Uh, I, you know, I was born in Louisville. My parents are actually from the West end of Louisville. So we, uh, you know, as a kid, uh, lived my life, but like in fifth or sixth grade moved to Indiana. Uh, so I went to IU and, uh, obviously we don't, I wish to God Louisville had an NBA team, man, because I would be sitting <laughs> here waving that flag right now, but it's definitely the Pacers. Nice. So what'd you think about the last dance when you saw the last episode with Reggie Miller versus Jordan? Man, I, you know, I love that. I mean, I remember that. I mean, it, you know, it's pretty, it, it was pretty incredible. I mean, it, you know, Reggie Miller, you look at the guy, you never think that he could take over a game the way he did. But, I mean, you know, mentally, and then obviously I'd love to see, I don't know, maybe they've done a 30 for 30 on Reggie Miller and Spike Lee and that whole dynamic with the Knicks. Um, but the last dance, they couldn't have timed releasing that any better. I mean, it really took me back because that was back when, um, you know, when the Bulls were dominating uh, towards the end of my high school career and then obviously into college. But, it was heartbreaking, man. That game seven was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking because you knew. I mean, the Pacers didn't – they're kind of on limited time, and you just knew, man, it ain't going to happen. Right, right. And I just love to watch the matchup between Jordan and Reggie Miller because Reggie Miller just had that dog, man. And he just – Oh, my God. Just loved to compete, man. Yeah, he could – I mean, you know um, – I mean, they all got a little bit of trash talk in them, but I don't know of anybody outside of Jordan and a few other guys that could back it up the way Reggie did. Yeah, I hope they put a statue outside of uh, the Coliseum for Reggie, man. I think so, man. I think it's going to happen at some point. What compliments a bourbon better, steak or a cigar? Uh, I'm going to definitely say steak. I'm not – I mean, you know, I I smoke cigars on occasion. I just – for whatever reason, I can't – I just can't do it, man. I mean, if I'm drinking and I smoke a cigar – it's like I get lightheaded. I don't know. I just can't, I can't figure it out. But definitely uh, steak and bourbon, no question. Nice. Your favorite part of the distillery that makes you feel at home or makes you recognize how much of a privilege it is to be a master distiller? Oh, man, that's a good question. You know, I think my favorite part is when um, I pull in in the mornings and things are quiet, but all you hear are the sounds coming from the distillery, even as you walk up, right? You know, you hear the mill running, you hear the, the, um, the grain conveyors, you hear the steam running through the stills. I mean, that to me, that moment when you first walk up, I mean, every single day, and especially here at Makers, the way this place looks and the way it's built, every day that I get out of my truck and I hear that and I smell that and I see that, it's like I, I am definitely the luckiest person in the world, no question. Nice. Who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Oh, shit. I mean, it's got to be Jordan. I mean, I thought that before, and then even after watching the last dance, just unbelievable. I mean, just abso- absolutely incredible. Um, so, you know, that's a – I don't – I love LeBron. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I think he's incredible. It's just a different – it's a different game now. And, uh, yeah, hell, I'd love to see that matchup. Um, And Kobe as well. You know, obviously Kobe was coming in towards the end of Jordan's career. But, um, I mean, I don't know that I could go away from Jordan, man. Nice. 
Well, you kind of already answered this earlier, but on a scale of 10, how good are your bartending skills? <laughs> it's a one, man. <laughs> it's a one, no doubt. This is a question that we call franchise sign away. You got to franchise a guy who you're going to build your, you know, your franchise around. You got to sign a guy that you're going to keep on your team and you got to waive a guy that you just, you can't keep. We're going to go two guard edition. We're going to go Dwayne Wade, James Harden, and Allen Iverson. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm going, I, you know, maybe this is just me going back to my younger days, but I'm going Wade and Iverson. Who are you franchising? Who are you building your team around? Oh, oh, so this is all. So you got a franchise. You got to put a franchise on a guy. Like, this is the guy I'm building my team around. And then you got to sign a guy keeping on your team. All right. Um, God, this is tough, man. I, you know, I think I'm going. I think I'm going to go with Harden building the franchise around. Building the franchise around Harden. Okay. I think so. I think so. I, there's still hope. <laughs> Who are you signing? Listen, you're, you're, you're the resident expert when it comes to this. This is – I'm just taking a wild stab at this one. And so am I trading away a guy? You got to – you building your franchise around Harden. Who are you signing? You got to sign somebody that you're keeping between Iverson and um, Wade. God bless. Oh, man. Um, I'm signing Wade trading, trading Iverson. Ooh, you know the fans are going to kill you either way, man. I feel like I'm going to regret that one. <laughs> That's why I'm not a GM. I'd be fired within a month. <laughs> one person that you would love to meet? Um, one person that I would love to it meet. It can be past or present. God, this is a tough one, man. I didn't, Larry, I didn't know you were going to throw these at me. Um, well, maybe you've met everybody. What's that? I said, no, well, maybe I certainly haven't met everybody. <laughs> I guess it, you know, I guess, I guess it just depends in a way. I mean, from an industry standpoint, I wish I'd gotten to know Booker. I mean, you know, just – you know, talking to Fred and, um, you know, cause I, I was coming in, I was coming into the business and Booker hadn't been involved in the operations for very, or yeah, he'd been out for probably two or three years. So if there was somebody that I wish I could go back and, you know, just pick their brain, um, no doubt it would, you know, it would be Booker from an industry standpoint. Um, on the flip side of that, you know, I'd love like my grandfather, my mom's dad, you know, he just uh, a, a guy, an Irish guy, you know, probably stood about five feet tall that passed away a while ago. It'd just be, it'd be, it'd be neat to get together with him again. I mean, he had no idea. I think I was just starting out in the industry um, and kind of getting a feel for what he thinks about all this, but nice. That's a, that's a tough question. though. Last question. Now with your maker's bottle, You've had John Calipari on a bottle. You've had Rick Pitino on a bottle. Which side of the line do you fall on? You a Vail or you a K? Yeah. So my dad, my dad graduated from the University of Louisville back in '73. Yeah, because that was the year I was born. And so my oldest, my son, just graduated high school 
and he's going to U of L. It's never been a question. I mean, he not once. I mean, I was asking him, "Do you want to go look at any other schools?" He's like, "Nope, I'm going to U of L." So he's going in speed school. Starts in August. Big time Louisville fan, um, as am I. I mean, it's we have season football tickets, season basketball tickets. Uh, so yeah, University of Louisville. Don't I don't hate Kentucky by any means, but I'm a card man. No no doubt, my son is my son is right there with me. Nice. Well, Denny, I'm definitely not going to call you Harry Potter, as I've seen some people say <laughs> in the past. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know you're a busy man. You have a lot that you have to supervise, but I appreciate you just taking a little bit of time out of your day to come through and talk on the podcast and talk bourbon. Um, again, just want to say thank you. No, hey, thanks for the invite, Larry. Hopefully we can do this at some point on site or – or in Louisville somewhere, would, uh, yeah. would love to meet you in person. But thank you for the invite. Really just want to send a big thank you to Makers Mark. Thank you to Master Distiller Denny for coming through on the podcast and really just dropping a ton of information on us about the bottle selections that they have and just about the knowledge of being a Master Distiller. Um, they gave us some great selections. They gave us the Makers Mark 101, which had a nice, full, creamy, uh, caramel type of um, – flavor with it. They gave us the private select 110 proof, uh, really had a oak and cinnamon flavor with it. Uh, had a little bit of spice, probably the most spice out of all of them. And if I had to give one the nod today, I would definitely give the nod to the RC6 wood finishing series. The French styles just really just blow you away when you open the bottle. It's such a sweet, aroma vanilla and the uniqueness of the French style aroma as well. Um, but the taste of it was just fulfilling, nice, full body with it. Uh, just a, a great bourbon overall. All three bourbons were great. And if it were a different day, I might have a different selection. But today, the RC6 gets denied. But that's all. Thank you guys for tuning in. Make sure you guys tune in next Wednesday. We'll have another special guest on our episode. Follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is the PPU Podcast. On Instagram, our handle is the Players Perspective Podcast. Make sure you guys subscribe and like. I really appreciate your support. Thank you for everything. That'll do it. And that is the player's perspective.